market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money and a special episode. No, Doc's not here. You've just got me, Scott Phillips, but I've got a special guest. Now, I could use the magic of radio to pretend that Meg Heffron and I were just meeting for the first time, that everything was wonderful and we hadn't recorded this same podcast about a week ago, but the gremlins stole our recording. In fact, that's exactly what did happen. So for Meg and I, this is our second time around the, the same track, but we'll do our best to make it sound interesting and fun. The other thing I could have said if I wanted to is reflecting on a question we got on our mailbag only last week from a listener who was saying, well, what's this SMSF thing? Do I need it? Is it really hard? Does it cost too much? I want to pick my own stocks. What do I do and how do I do it? Let's triangulate that and I'll introduce Meg Heffron who is uh, runs S- Heffron SMS- SMSF, uh, a business that helps Australians run their own self-managed superannuation. Meg, good day. Good day, Scott. I've got a terrible case of being tongue-tied at the moment. I'll try and untie my tongue while we, while we chat. Now, Meg, you and I did chat is, last is that week. Is because unfortunately... we're talking about SMSFs and, and, <laughs> and SMSF? Are, I think they're designed to be a tongue twister, actually. Oh, man, it might well be, you know. Um, I, I, I remember a point you made last time. I'm going to keep that to myself for a second, not, not give that one away just yet. Um, we, will, we will try and have a similar conversation, hopefully even better, because we had a trial run last week. Uh, you had some audio issues. I had hail at my place here is I've got a tin roof and as I was trying to wrap the podcast up, it was just hailing. I thought it was just really heavy rain. I walked outside, there's about an inch of small hailstones on the ground. So it was a it was a fun uh, yet challenging conversation, which I'm really looking forward to having again. Now, Meg, we'll get into SMSFs in a second, but Heffron SMSF is not exactly the kind of thing you'd expect. There's no shiny, you know, George Street or Bridge Street office. There's no Burke Street office, uh, or at least not, not the major one. Uh, you and your husband run Heffron SMSF. You didn't exactly come about this the normal way. In fact, one of the outstanding things that we have an acquaintance who uh, who connected us, he said, Meg and her husband travelled around Australia with a Land Cruiser troop carrier. Tell me that story. <laughs> yes, well, we were trying to make our way from uh, jobs in Sydney to moving to the Hunter Valley, which you would think is just an hour and a half up the freeway south to north, um, For those who don't live in Sydney, that's a, very simple, that's a very simple drive. It's all good freeway. It doesn't take very long. You're there by the afternoon at the very least, even if you stop a couple of days. That, that's right, even in our trip carrier, which could only go about 80 k's an hour. <laughs> but um, yeah. we, we decided to go the long way around. So we'd, um, we left our, okay. our, our jobs in Sydney and uh, gave ourselves a year to travel around Australia and, uh, yes, went the long way around to the Hunter eventually making it sort of about nine months after we after we left. <laughs> well done. And you are still headquartered in the Hunter Valley, which is, as you've already said, about an hour and a half north of, roughly north of Sydney. Um, you were an actuary by trade, is that right? Yes, I was. Well, and I, I, I still am. Uh, yes, any, any sort of lover of maths who's too scared to be a teacher <laughs> ends up being an actuary. <laughs> okay. Now, all I know about actuaries is they tell us when we're going to die... Um, the old actuarial tables are kind of that. That's the only thing I know about actuaries. So, what does actuary actually do for the sake of our audience? Then, how did you find yourself deciding that wasn't the life for you, at least not in the traditional way? Well, I um, so I got there because I, I probably did follow the stereotype. I loved maths, but I was too nervous <laughs> to be a teacher. Right, I thought okay. the kids would laugh at me. So, um, I heard very late in the day about this career you could have where pretty much all you did all day was maths and it was all about probability and 
probability of, of death is one thing, but yes, it's all about probability. So I thought, well, that sounds like the career for me. Went to uni and discovered that there was this thing called superannuation that a whole lot of actuaries worked in back then. And back then okay. you used to use your actuarial skills to, um, to help people look after very large, very large companies who had their own super funds. They used to look mm-hmm. a bit like the public service where the company would say, when you retire, I'll give you seven times your final average salary. And actually, were the good old days, weren't they? The super? How much they... <laughs> yes, it was. Um, well, back then, often you either worked for the public service or a large company, and they would look after mm. funding your retirement for you. But the actuary's job was to tell the company how much to put in each year to make sure you got to the right answer at the end. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Now, in the in, in America, we know that these so-called defined benefit funds um, actually have brought down at least two car makers and a whole lot of other businesses as well. They were in the end, reasonably unsustainable. And the industry kind of moved on. Is that how you kind of found your way into super generally in the SMSFs in particular, or was the, was the journey a little less direct than that? No, look, you're probably right. So I, I started off working in super, doing that actuarial work, and then I got interested in, in superannuation generally. So I became more of a generalist superannuation consultant, but still um, advising those companies that, that had their own funds. Sometimes they were... They were like that, you know, that actuarial method of um, we'll, we'll give you enough to retire on. And other times they were more like the super as we understand it today. You put in money, the company puts in money and hopefully you end up with enough at the end. But um, probably what changed was I decided or my husband and I both decided we'd leave the city and move up to the country. And we just assumed that, you know, since most large super fund business was done um, out of the capital cities that we'd really have to do something else. And, you know, back then, this was the late 90s, and, and back mm. then um, SMSFs weren't even called SMSFs. They were called excluded funds. They were popular, but there weren't all that many of them. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I wonder if it was only something like 300,000 compared to 600,000 right. today. And, okay. um, and so we thought, well, if we know a lot about super... Um, I, I wonder if we surely, surely SMSFs can't be that hard, can they? They're just small super funds. And are they that easy? <laughs> well, we did discover there were a lot of gaps, uh, a lot of things that we had not <laughs> learnt in our corporate super days that we needed for to uh, work with SMSFs. But equally, there was a lot of crossover. So it's all governed by the same law. So there were there were an awful lot of things we had learnt in our corporate super days that were really handy in transitioning across to self managed super. Very nice. Now, I think uh, Kai, who introduced you and I, um, there are some similarities. I live in a regional area as well, the other side of Sydney. Uh, I do have a similar degree of wanderlust. I don't have a a croup carrier, unfortunately, but I do have a a Prado, which has seen some dirt over the last little while, and I'm itching to get back out there again, mate. But it wasn't just a a social reason for the call. And this is what I thought, this is why I wanted to chat to you, because Kai said, hey, do you reckon you should talk to Meg? I said, well, actually, that might make sense. There is so much that is assumed to be either known or unknown about super and SMSFs. So much that, you know, people think maybe I should or am I supposed to or what do I do with it? How does it work? And so we thought we'd just have a quick chat and actually sort of go through some of the the pros and cons, the good and bad, the should I, shouldn't I type conversations. Now, I'll say to our listeners, as I say about everyone, including the Motley Fool, you should always wonder about the incentives. It's fair to say Meg would think SMSFs are a good idea. It's fair to say that I think investing in shares is a good idea because it's what we do. It's also usually the case, though, that we kind of do these things because we actually think it's right in the first place, right? So it's important to always understand the power of incentives and what skin anyone might have in the particular game. But also when you've got some expertise from someone like Meg, we'd be silly not to try and tap it, to really understand 
more about SMSFs, help you understand more about SMSFs as a listener and whether an SMSF is right for you. Now, I'm going to start with something you mentioned last time, Meg. I'm going to, I'm going to let you say it, but you don't think they should be called SMSFs. You think they should be called something else. Tell us what that is and why. Oh, that's right. I've forgotten we so, talked about that. Yeah, no, no, I'd forgotten we talked about that. I, um, I think they should be called self-directed superannuation funds because self-managed really that's implies. Ah, uh, yeah, not quite. Because I think self-managed really implies you have have to do everything yourself. You really have to manage it yourself, whereas self-directed right. is really more about being the puppeteer and calling the shots. So. I think self-managed funds actually really are self-directed because a lot of people have a lot of help when they run their their self-managed super fund. You know, Heffron's business is built around um, helping people who who look after their super fund themselves who really are self-managed and we'll just give them a mm. bit of assistance when they need it or accountants who are helping clients look after their super fund or financial advisors. Um, so there's a there's a whole lot of help that people can tap into if they want to. The key thing about being a self, an SMSF is that they're self directed. Right, I like that. And and you know, as as investors at the Motley Fool and most of our listeners, we kind of make our own self directed share purchases. But as you rightly say, very few people don't read the paper, pay for some sort of financial advice like someone like the Motley Fool or someone else. You know, it's it's rare that in the same way SMSF feels like do it only by yourself. No, no, no DIY investing is do it only by yourself. It just means you make the decisions, you, you pull the trigger, you get that advice, you get that information, you get that help from somebody else. I, I like that as, a, as an approach. Tell us a bit more about that, Meg, in terms of, let's, let's wind back a bit. So there are two, as a, so I have an SMSF and unfortunately not a Heffron one, but you can, you can make your case for me afterwards. Um, there's, there's kind of, you know, each individual person involved in an SMSF or not everyone, but almost everyone has two roles. They are two people at the same time, at least legally. And this is really, really important. So let's start from the very beginning. As an SMSF trustee, someone who runs the fund, you can't just treat it like your own personal account, can you? There are some specific rules and considerations you need to be aware of before you go into an SMSF. Yep, that's right. So um, the ATO has a really good expression for this. They say it's your money but not yet. And what they mean is um, <laughs> you, you like can that. be very self-directed. Yeah, you can, you can be very self-directed. You can, you can ch- make a lot of the choices around um, right. how the money's invested, uh, whether you get insurance for the members and all those kinds of things. Um, but you have to comply with a lot of rules until you're allowed mm. to take it out. Once you take it out, it's your money. But until then... Um, you have to follow some rules. I think one of the things you mentioned was there's a difference between being, or you said people have two roles, they're a member mm-hmm. and a trustee. And right. um, it's it's funny because uh, people who have SMSFs often, do you feel like this? Do you feel like you're sort of writing letters to yourself all the time? You're, you're, notice, <laughs> exactly. you're, you're taking minutes of take, yes, taking yep. minutes of meetings where you're talking about right, yourself, right. which seems a bit a, a bit silly and artificial sometimes. But um, yeah, yeah. but in fact, um, that what you're really doing when you do that is recognizing that there are two distinct roles mm. that you're holding. One is you're a member, so you're the person whose money is being handled. But secondly, you're a trustee, you're doing the handling. Mm-hmm. And as the trustee, your job is not just to think about your interests, but the interests of anybody else who belongs to your fund. So lots of funds have two people, husband and wife often. Um, so each of them, when they're being the trustee, have to think carefully about what the other wants as well. Most of the time that's easy because they both want the same thing, but it can get really yep. hairy if they get divorced or, or want to head in very different directions with their super. So yes, the two roles are really important. Most of the time... 
um, it's it, it's 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 okay uh, not to think too hard about keeping them separate, but when it's <laughs> right. important, it is. <laughs> we yeah, certainly exactly. have clients, um, you know, within our within our client base where they've never even really noticed that there's a difference between the two until a conflict comes about, and then they have to really think oh, about wow, it. Okay, yeah, right. Hey, so just tell me a little bit. I mean, we'll get through, we'll get through some of the boring, or not, maybe I should say boring stuff. Some of, some of the paperwork. Are you calling SMSFs boring? No, 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 not at all. Of course not, of course not. Um, let, let's get through some of the, uh, the, the, the trickier stuff. So, I mean, it seems obvious and maybe, you know, too easy, too good to be true. If I said, look, you can take control of your superannuation fund with tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in it, invest it however you want, do your own thing. It's it's pretty it's pretty attractive, right? I get to be master my own domain. I get to build my own wealth, all that sort of stuff. It's not obligation free, though. Maybe you can just if if someone's out there thinking about becoming an SMSF trustee, starting their own self managed fund. We won't call it self directed because it's going to confuse people. But I, I take your point from earlier. So self managed fund. Um, what should they consider before starting? What, what are the what are the paperwork obligations? What are the legal obligations? What do they need to know? Not in in absolute detail, of course. They should get their own advice and do their own research, but. If I'm thinking about starting it, you're going to say, okay, go for it. Just know you need to do these things or know these things. If you've got a quick kind of, you know, just a quick few bullet points as to what people should be mindful of before they make the plunge or take the plunge. I think the first thing I would do is I would think carefully about what I want to do my, following the the idea of self-directed, I would think Mm. carefully about what I want to do myself and what I'm going to get somebody else to help me with. So if I'm someone who already has an accountant, so often, not always, but, you know, in in our client base, there would be a lot of SMSF people who are small business people. So they'll have an accountant um, who's helping them look after their business affairs. So they might talk to their accountant about whether, um, you know, they've got or or what sort of assistance their accountant can provide. They Mm -hmm. may or may not um, want a financial advisor. So again, in our client base, a lot of our clients actually have a financial advisor, which probably sounds crazy because, yeah. you know, people go into SMSFs imagining that it's all about managing everything myself and I've got to <laughs> pick right, my own stocks right, yeah. and yep. there's there's definitely plenty of people who are very happy doing that, but there are some who are mm-hmm. not. And so I'd think carefully about all of those roles and how um, who, do I have someone who I can get to help me do that or am I very comfortable doing it myself? Um, then I'd think about... Um, what's that going to cost? Because that'll all play into the, is it cost effective or is it not to have a self-managed fund? And then, um, uh, yeah, then I'd go for it. Nice. Now, when we through the process here, like if I'm someone who says, I don't really love paperwork, I already don't really love when the bills turn up and I go check my bank account, I've got all this stuff already to do, and how on earth am I supposed to as, as just someone who's got another job and another interest and I like investing and I like managing my money, but man, my, my day job's already busy enough. How am I supposed to stay on top of all this stuff? I'm not, not sure, maybe this is an ad for Heffron SMSF. I'm not entirely sure if I asked the question right, but in terms of, um, in terms <laughs> no, of the way you, you think about, yep. yeah, I mean, what, you know, sort of, <clears throat> if, if I kind of, I mean, again, I've been in the game a little while, you've been in the game for a little while, but if I'm coming to this anew, I'm thinking, man, how do I, I, I think about, so quick tangent, if I started a, a cafe tomorrow, I've thought about this a couple of times, I'm not going to, but if I've heard tomorrow, I'd be thinking to myself, man, I guess I've got to do food safety and I, must, I guess I have to know what the council allows me to do and I guess I have to know how to do the finance, I guess I have to know. And you kind of think, man, who, who do I go to and say, I'm going to go and run a cafe, tell me everything in every area I possibly need to know so I don't accidentally make a mistake. If I take that same approach to SMSF and say, how on earth does someone brand new to SMSFs, do I get this right? Do I make sure I'm not going to mess up something? What's the what's the best way to do that as a as a as a potential SMSF trustee? 
I must admit, <clears throat> I'd be far more nervous about starting a cafe than setting up <laughs> an Isthmus F. <laughs> nice. Good line. <laughs> so I like that. It, in, in your case, so you probably set up an Esmus F because your expertise is in picking stocks. Correct. So you thought, well, an Esmus F is going to be a great vehicle for me to do that. So you weren't really then after help on how to choose the investments, which someone else Correct. might be. You were going to yeah. be more concerned about, oh, I know there are rules. I don't want to step outside the rules. So totally, a good starting exactly point right. for someone who's, who's, who's like you 10 years ago might be do your own research. Like the internet is full of good uh, mm-hmm. of, of, um, content on SMSFs. The ATO's site actually has an enormous um, volume of stuff and it's really, really accessible. Um, sites like ours, so the Heffron site, will have material on things like how do I weigh up whether it's right for me, what do I need to do, what do I need to be careful of, what are my roles and responsibilities. It's pretty easy to self-educate and then you might talk to your accountant about setting it up or you might talk to a a firm like ours about setting it up. Mm -hmm. And I guess bear in mind um, that there's really two extreme ends of the spectrum. So at the one end, you can, you can genuinely do all that administrative work yourself. All the bills come to you, um, all the bank statements come to you, um, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the year, you bundle it all up and you give it to your accountant to do a tax return. And get, it, and get an audit. But at the other end of the spectrum, and we've got plenty of clients who operate like this, um, we're actually the mailing address for a lot of that correspondence. So yeah, they have everything... This is, this is starting to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, but look, and it's funny, isn't it, Scott, how it, different... Uh, your needs change over time, which is one of the really interesting mm-hmm. things sure. about an SMSF. So, so at the beginning when you're really excited about all this paperwork because you're a paperwork nerd... You can have it all coming to you and, <laughs> yeah. and, and absolutely love that and have a million manila folders. Um, right. But then at some point you might say, look, I don't have the time for this. I want that to go somewhere else and really I want the service to be different. I want my, yeah. uh, my accountant or my administrator reaching out to me when I need to do something rather than me having to uh, d- decide. But again, you're in charge. It's self-directed mm-hmm. so you choose which, le- which, which end of the service spectrum you want. And at right. Heffron, and the service providers actually got, help, the, help you out with it. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, like at our business, we have people at, at both ends of the spectrum okay. and we help a, an awful lot of accountants. You know, our business is, is, is often helping accountants and financial planners who themselves have clients at different ends of that spectrum. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Now, I'm gonna, you mentioned accountants setting up SMSFs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my cynic hat on for a second because I have a sneaking suspicion there's a not, not too small number of people who are tipped into SMSFs because maybe the accountant can make a bit of an income stream, maybe the financial planner can make a bit of an income stream, because, hey, if I get you to do that, well, I'll, I'll do the paperwork, I'll get the auditing sorted. You know, there's a nice little bit of a kind of, you know, um, easy kind of, you know, income stream, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a gravy train there. Uh, maybe you've, you've got some property. Look, I'll help, me, I'll help you with that as well. I'll, I'll turn that into an SMSF so I can clip the ticket on that. If you do it outside that, I don't get any money from it. Um, convince me that, or maybe maybe don't convince me, maybe, maybe I'm right. Um, is, is that right or am I, am I just a little bit too jaundiced by reading too many, uh, too, too many bad news stories and not enough of the good news ones? You're so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think it would be fair to say that there are probably situations like that that happen. In fact, I'm sure there are. But um, I'd say equally there are plenty of situations where there are, you'll have accountants, you'll have financial advisors who really want to do what's best for their, for their client and they'll actually go right. to quite a bit of effort to give, you know, legally compliant advice saying what to them is as, 
as obvious as the nose on your face that this client should have an SMSF. So I think yeah, right. it's it's really easy to tar the entire um, support it, it, you know support industry with one brush. But mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. by, I deal with thousands of accountants and financial advisors in our business, <laughs> and right. I honestly would say that a lot of them are really really good. Nice, and I'm sure that, I'm sure that's right. I just I just I worry I worry a little bit about the know something but not much client who is kind of convinced by someone else, hey, you should have SMSF because, and they're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if that's right. Yeah, no, you need to do it. You need to do it. Yeah, I mean, again, there's not SMSF, right? This is all all financial products, unfortunately. Um, there's been so much in the Royal Commission and other places around bad financial advice. I guess maybe, maybe rather than being cynical, I guess my, my caution would be to everyone listening, if you're being pushed out by somebody, ask yourself why and what they've got to gain from it. Um, I Look, I've got this myself. I think they're great for a heap of people. But if you're not the one driving this train, if you're being pushed by someone, your account, your financial planner, just have a just have a just pause and, and wonder why and maybe maybe just don't get pushed into something you're not super comfortable with. Meg, on that on that line then Talk to us a little bit about the pros and cons, the whys and why nots of SMSF. Now, obviously, you run a business that, <laughs> that deals with them, so you're a big fan. Um, I'm, I'm a fan as well. But there are going to be some people for whom an SMSF is just a no-brainer and they're not doing it yet and why aren't they? There are probably others who have an SMSF who you probably would have said, oh, mate, you really didn't need to do that. You're not really the right person or in the right circumstance. So give me, give me a bit of the who, who should and who shouldn't be looking at an SMSF. Yeah, look, good question because I often struggle to think of, you know, um, black and white rules about who should, who shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and and look, people often considerations arbit- then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm 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 getting there. I think um, I I what I don't like is this arbitrary um, asset balance cutoff point, as in yeah. no one with less than two hundred thousand should have one, or no one with less than five hundred thousand should have one. Quite possibly not. The, the only reason asset size is important is because it'll affect the calculation you do as to whether it's going to be cost effective. And that is an absolutely critical calculation to do. But if we ignore right. that for a minute, I think there are very few people who for other categorically should not have an SMSF. Um, the people who shouldn't perhaps are the people who really struggle with their personal tax obligations already. You know, if you're someone who never gets around to filling in your personal tax return... Are you going to struggle with, um, you know, paying attention to the fact that you still have to lodge and sign a, a super fund tax return? So maybe don't do it if yeah. you're in that spot. But um, but there'd be plenty of people who, um, who, who for whom I, I, I wonder. I've I've often wondered this actually whether there's just as many people who actually should have an SMSF who don't as there are people who have an SMSF who shouldn't. So. One of the one of the big things I think we touched on this last time that I'm really keen on as a as a um, a, a reason for having an SMSF is it's what I'd call a, a platform for life. Um, often the biggest benefits that relate to SMSFs really kick in as you get older. They really kick in mm-hmm. around planning immediately before retirement and heading into retirement, which might which makes you think, oh well, so no self respecting forty five year old should look at it. <laughs> Whereas, in, in fact, though I would say 45 is exactly, it's a great time to be at least right. looking at whether you have an SMSF because you get into your SMSF while you're still young and while you haven't got too much in super and you're then set for life. You're in the right legal structure for the rest of your life. You don't have to worry that, oh gosh, I've just changed financial advisors and this financial advisor uses a different super fund to my last financial advisor. So now I have to move and I have to sell all the assets I used to own in my old super fund and 
buy them again in my new one and I, I have to go and get my insurance sorted all over again. You know, all those things. You just an SMSF just means one thing stays constant, and it's it's your legal structure for your super. It's kind of nice, and not not much in life stays constant these days. I really like that idea. There's also tax implications for those sales, often, right? I mean, that's part of the if you have to sell assets to change funds, you're incurring tax in doing that. Yeah. So whether or not that's obvious to you at the time will depend on mm. exactly the structure of the fund. So so the way some funds handle taxes, it's all behind the scenes. You can't really see it as a direct impact right. of moving, but Behind the scenes somewhere, it's there. But other funds are quite transparent about it, and so you'll have a whole bunch of assets listed on your last Superfund member statement. And if you say, please move me to another fund, they'll say, sure, we'll just have to sell these assets. And if you're still in what what, what we usually refer to as accumulating, um, as in you're still building up your super, you haven't started drawing it out in a pension yet, then that that then tax has to be paid when you when you sell those assets. So actually, we've got a number of um, a lot of our clients come from financial advisors, and the financial advisors curiously will get them into the SMSF younger than you might think because they're looking at that friction point for change and they're saying, I've got a forty five year old for whom it's going to be quite you know more expensive than what they're doing at the moment, but I can see that in two or three years time it won't be, and at the moment it's a good time to get out of their old fund into their new because they won't pay much in the way of capital gains tax and things like that. that I, I guess I never, I've honestly, I've been in this game for a long time and I had never considered the friction and the, and the tax component of having to change structures. I mean, uh, you know, if you can stay in a single, I mean, you know, not everyone has to stay in the investments they make in their 20s, 30s and 40s, but if you buy, for example, an ASX200 ETF or a, or a you know, overseas ETF, and we talk about those a lot on the podcast, you could potentially hold that for 30, 40 years. I mean, if you, you know, if we've got a 25-year-old listener right now saying, I'm about to go and buy a, a Vanguard ASX 200 ETF or a Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, there's no real reason for them to sell that between now and retirement, frankly, even post-retirement. Um, I mean, that's a long time to hold a single asset without a tax event, right? That, that's a pretty compelling reason, almost in and of itself. If you think about how much that compounds over time, in theory, they're adding to it as well over time. Um, that in itself is a pretty compelling reason to kind of try and pick early and stick with whatever you decide. Yeah, so with that ETF, would you expect it to be appreciating in value? And so eventually when it's sold, there's a capital gain on the fund itself. So yeah, in that case... Yeah, yes, yeah. Right, and don't forget, when super funds start paying pensions, they, they largely stop paying capital gains tax. So mm-hmm. you could be in the weird situation where your 25-year-old listener today... Yeah. Sets up their SMSF. Now, not many 25-year-olds have SMSF, so I should qualify that. Let's make them 45. Yeah, sure. So they okay, set up okay. their SMSF, they buy that ETF, and they don't sell it until they're 70, let's say. Yeah. Now, by yeah, the time yeah. they're 70, they'll be taking a pension from their super fund, which means Correct. they will probably be able to sell it at least partially, if not entirely, CGT, capital gains tax free. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. if they'd had to sell it you know, to move super funds at 55, um, mm-hmm. they'd have triggered the capital gains tax then. Right, right. And, th- and that's a meaningful, I mean, that, that's a, not only is it a large number, it's just an unnecessary reduction in both the capital gain itself and even the income you get from it, right? If I've got to sell 10 units, and I can afford to buy back eight of those units because I've paid tax, then those eight units are going to generate a certain dividend income, for example, or capital growth over time that's going to be significantly less almost by definition because I've already paid the tax on that. I mean, that's a, a, I, honestly, maybe I should have. Maybe there's listeners out there saying, Scott, you're an idiot, and they're probably right. I should have thought about that, but it's a really, really compelling opportunity. It, it is, but it's just quite opaque. Like, it's not always obvious is, yeah. that that's what's happening behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not... 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not something most people take into account when they set up an SMSF. Like I said, my experience or, um, of that is largely around advisors mm. who are saying uh, to us, look, I know this looks odd, we're going to set up a, a, a super fund for this client and at the moment they've only got 300000 which, you know, mm. is probably line ball in terms of cost effectiveness. But we're setting them up now because over the next few years we have a lot of money going in and we can see that it's going to be highly beneficial for them in a couple of years, but we want to get the friction point now. Make the case for me. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to denigrate your competitors necessarily. They feel free to because it makes great radio. Um, make the case for me as to why an SMSF is better than a low-cost industry fund. I mean, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of industry funds. If you're going to be in a in a in a you know non-SMSF super fund, I think if you can keep your fees low in life generally and in super in particular, that gives you the best chance of giving the getting the best possible result, right? So I've said to lots and lots of people, hey, if you're going to have a you know retail industry fund, grab a low cost industry fund, invest well in that, you know, let that do the work and avoid the fees. So if I've got a low cost industry fund right now, why would I why would I want an SMSF? Why would I actually make the change? Why don't I just stick with what I've got and let that do its job? Uh, and I'm um. Uh, this may sound odd coming from me, but I'm actually a big fan of low-cost industry funds. I think industry funds have filled an amazingly valuable role. Given that super is now compulsory for pretty much everybody, you know, everybody who has a job has super. Mm -hmm. So a low-cost industry fund has done a brilliant job at, um, at giving everybody access to great investment expertise. Um, The reason you might switch out of an industry fund. um, So, Eventually, what you're going to find, you're going to quite possibly find that it's too restrictive. So here's a mm-hmm. here's a really simple example, right? Industry funds are pretty basic in terms of the insurance they offer. Yep. Now, yep. superannuation is a great spot from which to pay your insurance. And should you die or become disabled prematurely, it's great for your spouse often to inherit, um, you know, to, to for your for your insurance payout to have gone into into your SMSF. Now, right. everybody says, oh, uh, keep your insurance going when you leave your industry fund because it's really cheap. Totally. Mm-hmm. It's really cheap and it's uh, really basic and sometimes it's totally worthless. So wow. That's a bit cool. The, the, Tell me why. The, the la- well, because effectively with, with an SMSF, you know, you know how when you take out insurance, they do this thing called underwriting. You know, they, yes. they check you out first and then they agree to cover you. So that's the yep. order of events is, is the way, that's the way it works with, with an SMSF. They check you out first, they agree to cover you and then, it, you know, should something happen and you're ready to claim on that insurance, you're, mm. you're, you know, providing your case is legitimate, you're pretty guaranteed to get the money. But in an industry fund, they don't check you out first. <laughs> they check you out okay. later after something's already happened. So the right. risk you run is you're paying these premiums for years for cover that isn't actually right for you and then your loved ones don't get the money when something happens to you. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just a, a gamble that you're not taking with an SMSF. Right, okay. Now, yeah, equally, yeah, okay. you might decide there's a whole lot of tax planning that can be done around retirement, more easily mm-hmm. done in an SMSF. You might find also that you, your level of sophistication when it comes to investments is just getting a little bit higher. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of your listeners take advantage of things like um, IPOs, um, you know, opportunities that maybe... Yep. Um, so these small cap stocks, you know, a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, let, that's right. That's, yep. So that stuff is available in an SMSF, often not, mm-hmm. in, not available in an industry fund. What about the opportunity to invest in non... Uh, 
traditional, I always say non-traditional assets, that sounds like I'm talking about bloody wine and art and stuff, but I mean, you, you can't own an individual property in an industry super fund, right, or, or a retail super fund for that matter. Um, what sort of assets do you see people investing in in their SMSFs that give them that extra flexibility? Yeah, look, I think um, a lot of SMSF investors are pretty mainstream investors. They probably okay. own a lot of the same things um, that, that people own in large funds. So they'll own things right. like... Um, shares, uh, both uh, local and overseas. They own ETFs, managed funds. They about, um, I think it's about five percent of SMSF assets are in residential property, and about ten to fifteen are in commercial property. So there's okay. definitely the opportunity to own a specific property within an SMSF that isn't there with a large fund. Um, in our experience, we definitely have clients who come along saying, I want to set up an SMSF because I want to buy a property. But actually, okay. most of our clients don't. Most of, we, we probably look like the average. Um, most of our clients okay. would have um, a, a, a mixture of fairly mainstream assets. Where the gold is, is in things like I was talking about before, you know, there'll be an IPO mm. or there'll be a, a new managed fund opportunity out there that, that isn't yet on an industry fund menu or, or something yeah, like right. that. Now, we don't I've, see all I've, that many okay. funds these days with um, with artwork or, <laughs> you, you know, God. yes, that probably Wine, once upon gold, a time yeah, people gold, did do that a lot. And stamps and, yeah, yeah, but look, it's 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 just not so common anymore. Gee, that's nice. I look, I'm a shares guy. I'm not, I, maybe I'm just biased inherently, but. I got to say, I think if you're trying to invest in your retirement using art or bloody, you know, wine or something, it's a it's a it's a questionable strategy. Speaking of which, two of the things I find really frustrating about SMSF. So maybe again, maybe I'm biased, but first is I think I, I just can't get my head around the sense. And anyone, any financial advisor saying, look, you should own an SMSF where the majority of that fund, maybe even the entire fund, or almost the entire fund, is invested in a single property, a single unit or a house or something like that. Um, I just it, it just flies to me in the face of everything we know about being diversified, particularly for retirement income where, you know, I mean, if, if, if something happens to that house, if something happens to the property, if something happens to the area of the suburb of the street, just being so concentrated in a single asset just strikes me as bananas. I've I got to say, I'm not sure there should be rules around it. There's already plenty of rules and all this sort of stuff, but that feels crazy to me. Look, it, it's risky, isn't it? Like, but I... Um so there's there's risk and there's risk, right? Like every there's no such thing as the uh, as the as the risk free option. Even even yep. things that superficially look like risk free, like all in cash, yep. you would have plenty of reasons to say that's a crazy retirement strategy too. Oh man, that's so um, so yeah. I'm I'm uh, personally I wouldn't invest my entire um, SMSF my retire my entire retirement savings right, in right. one property, and in and in particular personally, I wouldn't invest it in the um, in the property from which my business operates, which is yeah. used to be a pretty common strategy, That's and I wouldn't do to. that because that would feel to me like I was I was mass- that would feel to me like I was massively doubling down on risk. Oh, you know, I, I'm um, man, yeah, yeah. That's However, um, what a lot of people do is a lot of people start there. So a lot of people might say, right, I'm going into an SMSF. I'm going to start with this property. But what I'm going to do as fast as I possibly can <laughs> is as, as, as I get more cash flow, new contributions, whatever, I'm going to invest, I'm going to diversify. So they've yeah. got a pretty clear strategy that they're going to diversify quickly, as quickly as they possibly can, but they might, they might start from a very high concentration of property. Mm-hmm. 
That's fair enough. Uh, look, I should say too, I haven't said it at the beginning, and I should say just for absolute avoidance of doubt, um, you're not paying for this. We're not. We're not paying you for this. This is just you on your own. Um, on your own volition. Happy to come and answer some questions. Of course, people will find out about Heffron SMSF and may choose to look you up. I think that'd be a great idea if people want to. Um, but there's no money changing your hands here, fools. There is no commercial deal. There's nothing. No quid pro quo. Um, I'm not even a I'm not even a customer, as I said, of Meg's business. So, um, so yeah, just, just put that, that really, really. Clearly I'm just going to check that out later. <laughs> not yet, anyway. I'm, I'm happy for you to make me a pitch afterwards. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Meg's just come on to and you know she's she's been very very gracious to answer some questions. So I'm. I'm I'm, you know, this is not. This, we're not here to, to, you know, cause trouble for our guests, but equally, we're not here to give them a free ride either. So makes makes me very generous to uh, to happily, uh, you know, answer some like curlier ones. Speaking of which, the other thing that annoys me, other than people investing in a single asset, and I get your point about diversifying after that, and hopefully, many people are doing that at least. The other one that gets me is borrowing. I just, I feel like. And SMSF is supposed to be this kind of reasonably conservative way of making sure you've got enough money by retirement without taking undue risk. And I just, I mean, I know, I know, you know, you can borrow money and leverage your returns. That can be great. But again, as Warren Buffett's famously said, leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke. Now, we'll say guy or girl. I'm sure Uncle Warren would, would probably choose to restate that differently these days. Um, if leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke, why are we letting people do it in super? It drives me nuts, Meg. Well, and you know, we didn't always. Like until 2007, it was actually illegal. Oh, and I honestly don't know why it was made legal in 2007. And um, it, it was kind of, there was no pressure from the superannuation SMSF <laughs> industry specifically. It just kind of came right. out of thin air. And, and yeah. for a little bit, nobody really even noticed because it was middle of the GFC and funnily enough, no one yeah, was thinking right. about borrowing at the time. <laughs> and look, yeah. lots, so lots of people have done that. Um, have yeah. have borrowed still a my not vast minority of funds mm. that borrow. It's got more legislatively constrained over the last couple of years, so it's probably getting less common rather than more. I totally okay. see your point though about it being. Um, and look, I'm not a financial advisor, so I'm nervous to express an opinion here because I, sure. I don't have the expertise to do so. But if I was looking at it from my personal situation, I'd be nervous about. Um, you know, doubling down on risk by leveraging my <laughs> retirement, um, yeah. my, my retirement savings. It's not something I would, I would, I would choose to do. But then, you know, there are plenty of people who make valid arguments for. Look, borrowing is often used as a as a as a means of creating wealth. Um, you you borrow to buy assets you can't afford, but which are going to go up in value. So, or which you expect to go up in value. So that's the sure. that's the logic to it. Um, and and so, but I but I would say my observation, looking at looking at our client base, the accountants we work with, the advisors we work mm. with, it's not it's nowhere near as common as the um, as 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 the sort of public rhetoric would have you believe. It's, okay, okay, uh, that makes it's, me feel it's, better. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I, I'm look, I'm not a fan. I'm happy. To, I'm happy to debate anyone who wants to tell me the otherwise. I get that it can generate wealth. I completely agree with that. By the way, as a as a general statement, I just feel like. For a system that's supposed to be a making sure people have enough money in retirement, and b making sure the the public purse isn't overly stressed at that point of retirement, doing anything that increases the chance that maybe you're not going to have not as much as you want, or in a worst case scenario, I mean, you know, I, mean, I don't think it goes to zero in any case, but you know, the, the possibility that you then become a drain on the public purse is, I, to my mind, is the biggest kind of policy criticism I've got of of self-directed super generally, right? So SMSFs or even people investing in a DIY investment structure within within retail super or industry super, it worries me just that people are, uh, you know, there's no there's no requirement to be conservative, requirement to make sure that there's going to be enough left at the end of the process. That that kind of the, 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 the structure of the rationale for super was pretty clear in the 90s. 
And I feel like we kind of just wandered a little bit away from the idea of, guys, this is actually simply about making sure A, you've got enough and B, the budget isn't stressed by the changes that are made to super on the way through. It, it feels like we saw uh, one of the, and I won't ask you to be political if you don't want to be, I'm certainly not asking you to be political. I'm, I don't mean this is a party political view, but um, was it one of the politicians has written a book saying that people should be able to tap super for their homes now, for their first houses um, if they want to and all that kind of stuff. I, I just... It feels like it's a bit of a, a bit of a magic pudding that you know everyone's trying to grab. We saw Anthony Pratt a couple of weeks ago say, "Oh, super should be used to you know, infrastructure projects in Australia." Everyone's got a use for super, right? Which is everything except what it was actually designed for. <laughs> well, and just recently, I mean, during the the the, the COVID nineteen stimulus packages, one of the government's approaches was to allow people to tap into their super. And look, I really don't know where I how I feel about all of that because. Mm. Um, I, I agree with you that if if as a as a voter let me let, let me depoliticize it by saying as right, a, yes, as, yeah, a totally. as as someone who's just a just Joe citizen mm-hmm. um, voting on tax concessions I would say if we're going to make superannuation concessionally taxed then as a taxpayer I want to pay off out of that in that I want to see that those mm-hmm. tax concessions are given to this person over here to save for their retirement and it works they end up being less of a drain on the public purse in the future. <laughs> that's kind of the idea. So, I, don't, I don't know why that's yeah, controversial. Yeah. That, that <laughs> but I think, but I think looking, at, looking at, say, the, um, the recent stuff, you know, the coronavirus being able to access yeah. your, uh, your $10,000 and stuff, gosh, if it was a difference, though, between them being a drain on the public purse right now because they're going to be homeless mm. versus they tap into their 10000 that allows them to keep putting food on the table, keep paying their mortgage... Um, until they get back on their feet, crikey. It's hard to argue with it, isn't it? I kind of agree. I, I will say outright, I'll be, I'll be more um, controversial than you because I get to be. Um, I think that is the very worst financial policy I have seen in at least five years. And not because, as you say, the people can't use the money, but because we had a million different ways of supporting those people. We're spending hundreds, literally of billions of dollars on industry support, on JobKeeper, JobSeeker, HomeBuilder, everything without a space between it these days. The government is pulling back on, they're saving money by getting rid of spaces. There's no space between Job and Seeker and Job and Keeper or Home and Builder at the moment. It's all, it's all mashed, mashed together. Um, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on that stuff. And yet when it came to the people, as you say, who absolutely are, many of them doing the right thing, hey, I need this money, otherwise I'm in dire straits. There are so many better ways to my mind to support those people than, than getting them to mortgage their futures, their, their retirements. It's just, it may, you know, and, and again, as you said, we, you know, and I said, we're going to, not only are mortgaging their own futures and their own retirements, but they're actually increasing the probability they're going to rely on the public purse at that point. So we're kind of not, you know, we're saying, well, we're not going to give any public money now. We'll just give it to them in 20, 30, 40 years' time for the rest of their lives because they haven't compounded enough on the way through. It just, I, anyway, Alyssa's heard me yeah, rant about look, that before, ma- Meg. Ma- maybe. One. I, I think um, you and I, interestingly, are both assuming that the purpose yeah. of super is to take the pressure off the public purse in the future. And, yeah. um, you know, retrofitting a purpose to a system we have, I would say it looks like we're probably right. Like, we've landed there for a reason. Mm-hmm. There's actually officially no sort of well-articulated purpose of the superannuation system as a whole. Um, That's interesting. But, yeah, um, but yeah I, one would hope that part of its purpose is to, is, is to <laughs> corral us, I guess, for, force yeah, right. us, help us to save for our own <laughs> retirement. But another weird thing, yeah. you know, you were saying before it's weird that um, there's no requirement to be diversified or there's no requirement to mm-hmm. be conservative or any of those things. You know, there's also no requirement to take the money as an income stream when you get there. 
So oh, one of the biggest holes <laughs> in our superannuation system probably, <laughs> which would be deeply politically unpopular oh, to fix, man. would be saying when you get to the end, you can't take, you've got to take it as an income stream because there's nothing to yeah. stop us blowing it all up at 65. <laughs> You get, so you get 65, buy a yacht, sink it, and then go back on the pension. It is I, – I, I, mate, I, I only need about eight months as treasurer, I reckon. I, I would never get a second term anyway, so it wouldn't matter. But give me about six or eight months as treasurer. I reckon I could fix a whole lot of stuff that would make me deeply, deeply unpopular, but I'm pretty sure it would actually fix the budget properly. And that, that and control is, is of the Senate. Particularly, oh, yeah, well, that could help too. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking a dictatorship here. I don't actually you – know, I don't need politicians to get in the way. I just, I just want to run the place for a while. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, be, I'll be good, I promise. But I'm dictatorship. What are some of the biggest? So let's move off from that. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make with super? Is there a if if it goes badly? Is there is there kind of a, a few reasons why it tends to go badly? Whether that's administratively, investment wise, do you have a sense of that? Do you see that from where you're sitting? Look, um, I, I it doesn't go terribly badly wrong very often. What goes oh, that's badly? A good start. It, it is, <laughs> but that's. Um, that's because so we talk a lot about oh super's complex and all that kind of stuff, but that is really why your accountant and people like us exist to keep right. you out of trouble, despite the fact that it can be complex. It's complex to know every single rule and all of the ins and outs of every single rule. It's not yeah. complex to understand, broadly speaking, the train tracks that you need to sit on. So or the guardrails you need to be between. It's it's actually, you know, if you think about um, think about an SMSF that's owned by someone like you who's largely investing by stock by, by picking stocks got some probably got some ETFs some term deposits I don't know like um, there's really there's not much you can do that's that's that you would that would occur to you to do that can yeah, can go yeah. wrong you know there's no such thing as a share a listed share you can't buy there's no such right, thing right. as a term deposit you can't have what you can't do is take the money out but I'll bet you if someone told you that mm-hmm. the moment you set your fund up they would have <laughs> said right. don't take the money out so yeah. so what the biggest trap people fall into I think is they decide that they're going to do something they've never done before like oh I'm going to buy property or I'm going to borrow and they don't check in at that point and realize right I'm um, I'm going to do something slightly different. I haven't done it before. It's it's not totally mainstream. I'll check in and make sure that there's nothing new yeah. I need to know. Other than that, look, I'll tell you honestly, in the I don't know how in 20 years, I don't know how many super funds have passed across my desk one way or another. I think I've only ever had to deal with really dreadful situations a dozen times. And okay, in, in many of those cases, if I was to really look the person in the eye and say, did you know what you were doing and you did this deliberately, I bet you there'd be a, there'd be a few of them that would say yes. Yeah, okay. Actually, no, look, they'd never admit it. But I wonder <laughs> yeah, if, the, if the, truth, the honest truth might, is yes. Is yes. Might be able to see Pe- in their eyes. Yeah. People, seriously, yes, yeah. seriously, people who are trying to do the right thing rarely get it so terribly wrong that they're massively... Um, you know, that they're hung, drawn and quartered. And even when they do get it wrong, you know, the regulator is pretty good at saying, ah, okay, I can see how this happened. It was unintentional. We're going to give you a big slap on the wrist and we might make you wind up your super fund and we might never let you have a super fund, your own super fund again, but we're not going to take you to the cleaners. They take people to the cleaners for doing things that are willfully dishonest. And most of us are just not like that. Yeah, it makes sense. So I, I would think, you know, 
as you say, taking money out, promising to put it back later, I guess, if you get the temptation to do that. I can imagine someone in sort of financial dire straits might be, well, I could just take it out. I'll put it back before anyone notices it's gone. Certainly that's, you know, that's how a lot of company frauds start, right? You think you'll just do it once then and put it back and no one will notice. And then it's, you don't quite do it and it gets worse and worse and worse. I can imagine that sort of scenario. Um, maybe people just get behind or screw up their paperwork, I guess, is the other reason, I guess, I can imagine. I have to say, and I'll look at this again, this is not an ad for you guys. Um, I use a, a different provider who I won't name. Um, but you know, I got I would imagine to your point. You've seen a dozen in how many years? I reckon I would. Is it is it likely that ninety percent of those are people who don't use some sort of manager or support? I don't know what you call yourselves, but I, you know, I, I can't imagine getting myself in trouble. Partly because I'm not going to do it deliberately, but also the provider is helps me stay on the straight and narrow pretty well. Um, that that kind of that kind of the guardrail, the framework, whatever you call it, is is a nice way to make sure you don't get yourself in trouble like that. Absolutely, but but it's the same if you think about it. With if you run a business, um, you know your your business <laughs> accounting, yeah, or your, yeah. you, you know you're always looking to someone else yeah. for help for the guardrails. So I think. Yeah, right. um, yeah, look, probably the, the really disastrous cases I've seen have either been um, people doing it deliberately, people making a mistake and then compounding it by running away. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's just like little kids, isn't it? You know, when they lie once and then they keep lying because <laughs> they don't want right. to. <laughs> um, That's how Ponzi and then, and then the... the Bernie Madoff story was pretty much that writ large, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Nice. In terms of kind of the way... SMSFs to manage what so okay so let, let's assume this conversation has been helpful for a lot of people they're like you know what I'm going to get started now I know the dollar value question is a tough one um, but but give me something on that if you can or at least some ways to think about that how much is not enough how much is about the right amount you know you know for, for a listener saying I, I think it might be right for me I, I kind of want to do my own thing I feel like I want to find a provider like Heffron or someone else who's going to help me with it I'm going to engage the expertise that I want that I need I want that control so I'm, I'm almost good to go do I have enough money yeah and and so the dollar amount is vitally important it's and the only reason I object to the question normally is because it's, it's not a single <laughs> dollar it, it's a it's right. a it's a different dollar amount depending on what you want to do so if all you want to do is invest in, um, uh, you know, ETFs and cash, your dollar amount is going to be different to someone who wants a more, um, you know, ha- has something more complicated to do because your accounting fees will be different. So, so the real yeah. the real trick here is to look at the costs you have that are associated with your SMSF and investing via that, and a lot of those will be fixed. You know, your two to three thousand dollars or whatever that you're paying your accountant will be fixed. Mm. And then look at the variable costs that you're, you're, you're paying, whether you know it or not, via your yeah. current fund. And, and a lot of those will be percentage of assets, which is why people say, um, oh, it's a no-brainer at a million dollars because by then the percentage of asset fee is really high compared to a fixed cost. Well, not necessarily. It depends what you want to do in your SMSF. There'd be plenty of cases where a million dollars, it's still cheaper to be in an industry fund. And there'd also wow, be plenty okay. of cases um, wh- where it might be the other way around. You know, at 500000 yeah, or right, 200000 okay. yep. it might be a decent cutoff point. It also depends how much you're going to do yourself. So if you're mm. going to do most of the work yourself, um, then obviously you need fewer people um, to, uh, th- that you'll be paying to, to run your SMSF. Um, so the cost equation, you know, ca- gets different there. The commonly, most commonly used number 
used to be about a quarter of a million dollars. It's probably a little okay. higher now. Let's say it's somewhere between two fifty five hundred, and that's a good spot that's at which okay. to think about starting an SMSF. Don't forget though, it's it's the size of the fund that matters. Now, given that yeah. most SMSFs have two people, you know, that's half a million point. dollars is two fifty each. That's actually a really good point. Mm. Of course, right. And at the bottom level, if it's three hundred grand, that's one hundred fifty each, which is not nothing. And you do have to have been accumulating for a little while. But as you say, at a fund level, it's basically half. You know, half what it would need to be as an individual if you got two people in the fund. That's a that's a particularly good point. Mm. And it's also Make, um, think okay. think not only about how much you've got today, but what are you doing over the next five years? You know, how quickly is it going to going to go up? Yeah. Right. 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 Um, one quick one I just want to kind of touch on, we talked about regulations before and that kind of stuff. One of the big ones that's always kind of kept me, not on my toes, but just, just making sure I didn't do the wrong things, the old sole purpose test. Now, the idea there is, again, as the trustee as opposed to the member, um, you, you know, you can't, you can't, well, I suppose you can, but, you know, there are rules around what assets you can buy and whether you can benefit from them as an individual while it's, a, while it's an asset of the fund. That idea that it kind of is, can only be for the purpose of generating retirement wealth, I suppose. Um, just explain that for us and the sort of things that a trustee should think about when it comes to the sole purpose test inside super. Yeah, look, the sole purpose test, I like to think of it as being, it's like an umbrella for all other superannuation law. It's really oh, like cool. a, okay. a mindset and it's, and it's all about your intentions. So superannuation is full of laws. Let's assume that whatever you want to do complies with those. I want to buy a property. Yep. That com- I'm allowed to do that in my self-managed super fund. Sole purpose mm-hmm. test is all about why do you want to buy it. And so your mentality going into that acquisition has to be, I want to buy a property because it's going to help me retire. It's going to mean that I'm optimising, maximising my retirement savings. It's going to mean that by the time I'm ready to retire, I have the money I need to do so. If, on the other hand, you were looking to buy that property because, oh, I rather, I want to buy a property in... Um, the, you know, just south of Sydney, Southern Highlands, because I uh, really fancy living there in a couple of years. So um, I'm going to buy the property now and then I'll, um, I'll buy it from my super fund in a few years' time and I'll, I'll move into it. That would be a great example of where the sole purpose test has is you, – you've, you've totally flouted the sole purpose mm. test because your motivation for buying the thing was, was something completely unrelated to retirement. It's really a risk when people are doing things that are connected to their, um, say, their business. Oh, I'm going to buy the property that my business operates from. And I'm going to do that because I really want to make sure my business is okay and has cheap rent. Uh, that would be a problem. <laughs> but saying right, right, right. it's actually a really good retirement asset is a totally different prospect. Right, okay. What, how would the ATO can you live? Well, firstly, can you live in the house? Can you live in a house owned by your super fund? No. Interesting. Uh, other rules only, like that? Only so the business you can, though, obviously. Go on. Yep. So there are special rules. So, so as a general rule, um, a super fund can only have up to five percent of its um, money held in things called in-house assets, and among other things, an in-house asset includes assets that you then rent to someone like you or a business or, or whatever. There are a couple of right. carve-outs there that don't have to comply with the, um, the, 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 the 5% rule. And that one of those carve-outs is if it's what's called business real property. So if it would be okay for my super fund to go and buy the, um, the premises that, that Heffron's head office is at and then lease that back to Heffron, even though I control the company, that would be okay. It would okay. not be an in-house asset. And you have to prove there's some sort of market rent level or something. Is there kind of some sort of ongoing test to make sure that 
you know, you say you could, you could rent it to Heffron for a dollar, um, you know, because you're trying to benefit the business or something like that. Are there, are there rules yeah, so how that's there done? are rules around that. There are rules around that, exactly. And that's for exactly that reason, because this is a retirement asset. So there's no right. way that my super fund should go <laughs> and buy the property that my business runs from and then rent it back to me, rent it back to my business at a really cheap rate. So there's actually rules on both sides of the equation. There's rules saying you mm. can't rent it to your business and not charge enough rent. If I don't charge enough rent, yep. then I'm really, if you think about it, um, favouring my business, which might yes. be great, but I'm doing over my retirement savings. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm penalising my super fund. So that's bad. That's right. illegal. But it's also yep. illegal to pay too much rent because if you think about that, that would be a course, great right. way of taking money from my business and funnelling it into my super yeah. funds. And since super funds pay less tax than businesses, that would be quite yeah. neat. But um, that's against the law as well. So the law is all about doing things that are commercial. Uses this term yes. arm's length. So um, a r- deals you do between your super fund and, and yourself or other entities you control. One of the mm-hmm. one of the toughest rules, or one of the rules you've that that people really scrutinise carefully, like your auditor will and the tax office will, mm-hmm. is have I done that deal on a commercial uh, commercially sound basis? There you go, fools. Don't do that. At least if you're going to have an SMS, don't do that. Um, Meg, we're coming up to the end of end of our time, so thank you very much for being so generous. Uh, I, 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 can we do a quick bit of buy, hold, sell? You, you up for a bit of fun? Golly, what's All buy, right, so hold, what we're sell? Do. If uh, I'm going I'm to put something to you, you think it's a good idea if it's a buy? It's a terrible idea if it's a, it's a sell. If you're not sure, it's a hold. So if I said buy, hold, sell, <laughs> having a business based in Newcastle, buy, buy. How how is how is Newcastle going as a city at the moment? I, I got to ask. It's been it's had its ups and downs, right? It's kind of never really recovered from BHP closing. How how is how are things right now? Yeah, look, Newcastle had uh, has had some tough times in its history. We even had an earthquake. Oh. Do you remember that? You did. Nineteen eighty nine. Do I That's remember that right? Got to be twenty thirty years ago now. But yeah, we, we okay. thirty years ago we even had an earthquake. But look, I'd say Newcastle's thriving. You're not selling it's it. Abs- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. These these days, I think Newcastle is thriving. Newcastle is a- nice. actually a beautiful city. So I'm about forty nice. minutes away from Newcastle, but it's a beautiful city, lovely beaches, um, and I think what people are slowly starting to realise. And I wonder whether COVID nineteen will accelerate this. They're starting mm. to realise it's darn close to Sydney, but without the traffic, without the high property prices. Um, nice. You know, and I, and we're all obviously getting very used to working from home these days. I'm I'm kind <laughs> of looking yeah. forward to a yeah I'm kind of looking forward to a bit of a surge in the regions, as in you know nice. this is a um, yeah, yeah. It, we we we, um, we we do we we do have a lovely lifestyle up here, and uh, and a, you know thriving successful business community. Nice buy hold sell a career as an actuary. Totally buy. Absolutely oh. buy. How could I'm you think you're not, anything I'm else? You're not in the majority on that one. <laughs> do you still consider yourself an actuary? Oh, I do. And actually, some okay. of the work I do is still quite what quite actuarial. Oh, no, it's <laughs> if right. you've got yeah. um, any fools out there with a super fund, an SMSF yes. that yes. is paying a pension, they yeah. will know they need an actuary. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and you're there to help. Nice one. I like that a lot. By hold or, well, firstly, what, what age, what year was your Land Cruiser trip carrier? Oh, you mean what year the car was made or yeah. the, we did the trip? Now, what, year, oh, what year was the car? Heaven knows. It was very right. secondhand by the time we got it in 97. 
So buy, hold, or sell traveling around Australia in a troop carrier with your then future husband. Am I right? Were you married by then? I can't remember. No, we were married by then. We were married okay, by buy, then. So and that, that's, buy, hold, or that's sell a traveling around Australia buy. with your loved one. Is it? Okay. That's a, that's a definite buy. Best year of my life, that one. Really? There you go. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous, I've got to say. If I convince my wife to do this, we might, we might do something similar. Now, we do. there is one question I've got to ask you that didn't actually come up in conversation this time, but did last time, just to finish this off. Tell me, you have a favourite bird. <laughs> now, you should give the context. At least last uh, time I'm you le- were, we were talking you about... <laughs> so last time that came up because you are, were, I think, wondering how an actuary and an accountant... Could oh, a well, end up married, us, but, but secondly, <laughs> but secondly, end up travelling around Australia. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and I, I admitted that we were both very nerdy and uh, loved bird watching, and nice. um, had always wanted to to do the kind of get away from it all. We spent three months in the Kimberley nice. where we would go for weeks without seeing oh, a single soul. So but we did I'm hear so a lot of, um, or did did see and hear a lot of a, a lot of birds. And yes, mm-hmm. I did admit to you last time. I think that there was nothing that could you beat did. waking up at you know pre-dawn in your Land Cruiser troop carrier, listening to a pheasant cuckle. It was pretty. <laughs> it was pretty glorious. And then 20, 20 years on, here we are sitting up in the Hunter with a business that's <laughs> playing in the SMSF space. <laughs> That's a hell of a journey, Megan. That's exactly why I wanted you to tell that story because it kind of bookends bookends the story of Heffron SMSF, at least until now. This is not the end, of course, for the business. You've got many, many, many years ahead of you. Um, thank you very much for, for making the time. Now, Phil, if you do want to find out a bit more about Heffron, you can go to heffron.com.au. That's a free plug, as I said. Uh, no commercial deal here, and, and frankly, I'm not even a customer. So uh, Megan's been very, very generous with her time. I'm sure you've appreciated and got a lot from it. I'm also pretty sure now, if you've got an SMSF, I'm sure, hopefully you've learned a few things. If you haven't yet got an SMSF, maybe now you have a sense of how you might go about getting one and how you might be able to benefit from having running your own SMSF. So, Meg, thank you very much for, for making the time. We appreciate you chatting with you. If, we may well have you on again a little while in, uh, in a few months' time, maybe if we get some more questions for our members, just maybe to, to answer some of those if you, if you can. Great. Thanks very much, Scott. Put you on the spot. <laughs> thanks, but that was Meg Heffron from Heffron uh, no, SMSF. And that does wrap us up, Fools. But before we go, don't forget you can, and I think you should, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, and why wouldn't you, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you next time with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.